Alright, so we're in 1 John this morning, looking at some introduction uh, things here. 1 John, as far as uh, authorship, the one who authors it, the internal or inside the letter, there's almost uh, no uh, difference of opinion when it comes to realizing that uh, this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, this John, uh, the, the apostle had younger brothers, or had a younger brother, James. Uh, we find that in Matthew 4 and verse 21. The word or the name, rather, John, means gracious. Uh, I always find it interesting how Bible names, the different meanings they have, and sometimes, depending on what story you're looking at, the name really fits that character very well. Sometimes, because what that name means, uh, it's fitting that they don't. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that someone may have a name that isn't very. The meaning behind it isn't very good. And sometimes, or a lot of times, you should say uh, their story is one of unfaithfulness and just a lot of uh, bad things. Uh, but John here, his name is mentioned as meaning gracious or God is gracious rather. Uh, Jesus referred to him as a disciple whom I loved or whom I love. Uh, this John was very close to Peter and to James. This John was also the one exiled to Patmos. Uh, this John wrote five of the New Testament books, uh, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, the book of John, and also the book of uh, Revelation. As far as who this book was written to, uh, the epistle may have been sent to one church or perhaps for many. I think in reality, we know that some, to me, the books of the New Testament are written to certain places. The book of Thessalonians, written to those at Thessalonica, book of Ephesians, written to those of Ephesus, and so on. But it doesn't mean that it cannot be shared or applied to other places as well, right? We know the letters, in the, for instance, of the seven churches of Asia, the reference there in the book of Revelation. Well, do we still talk about some of their problems today that we see today? Well, yeah. And so even though they may have been written to one specific place or not, uh, we can still, no doubt, learn a great deal from them, no matter who it was sent to, and no doubt the same would apply to them as well. As far as the occasion goes, uh, the occasion of the letter, that is, in, that is the things that were going on, the context of it, uh, seems to involve addressing many errors, many uh, false ideas. Uh, there's a lot of those who we call Gnostics. Gnostics claim uh, what we call superior knowledge. Uh, but Gnostics are very interesting because uh, they think about the way that they talk about knowledge, but also we look at some of their ideas and some of their teachings. It's lacking logic, <laughs> a lot of it. Uh, but we'll talk about that more as we go through this. Uh, other false teachers alluded to by John include the Judaizers and the Nicolaitans. Uh, John wrote the brethren to be full of joy by knowing that they knew they had eternal life, 1 John 1 and verse 4, and also 1 John 5 and verse 13. Now, that's a very brief introduction. Uh, we could talk about the time in which it was written. In all reality, unless we're talking about putting certain things in the timeline, to be honest, a lot of times when the, the date of a book isn't all that important unless you're talking about something like the book of Revelation, you're talking about trying to line up when the church began, things like that. The book of 1 John, in all reality, doesn't matter when it was written, because it still teaches us the importance behind it, the message behind it, is so important. It doesn't mean that the date is just something you throw out the window, but it's not something I'm going to put uh, focus on this morning, because there's a lot of different dates behind a lot of different books. Uh, many times they differ uh, several years. But we're going to get into our text again we think about introduction, we know John wrote it, we know 
He wrote several other books. We know he's writing to them, addressing several errors. And we also know that uh, one of the reasons he wrote to them is because he wanted to encourage them that they, to know that they can know that they have eternal life. The thing about one of the questions that come up today, do people ever ask the question, can I know that I am saved? Do people ever ask that? All the time, right, in reality. Uh, sometimes it's worded a little bit differently, but sometimes people are, are baptized more than once. I phrase that carefully, I don't like the phrase for baptism. Bat, they're baptized more than once because they're unsure of maybe what they knew before when they were baptized. Maybe they decided, I really didn't know everything I needed to know. I had a lot of misunderstanding, and so I'm going to be baptized properly. But later in life, sometimes because of hardships, maybe because we were not faithful at, at times as we should have been, sometimes individuals will begin to doubt their salvation. But we know, for instance, in 1 John chapter 1, that John also addresses that in verse 9, doesn't he? He tells us that we can confess our sins, that God's gracious, that God is faithful and just, forgive us of our sins, and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Again, showing us that we can know that we are saved and right beside of God if we will do uh, certain things. And so, First John, at least in my mind, has a lot to do with reassurance of those who have obeyed the gospel; they are indeed saved, and also cautioning them against uh, some false teaching that they were facing uh, as well. Okay, so let's look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, reading from New King James. The Bible says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Now, if you are familiar with John, the book of John, verse 1 and following, chapter 1, verse 1 and following, you'll find a similar idea. So if you'll keep your finger there, if you'll turn... Again, 1 John 1, verse 1, In the beginning, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. So he's talking about someone who's been, who is eternal, who they have seen, who they have touched, right? Now let's go to John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Is that also talking about someone who is eternal? Yes. Is it talking about someone who, we, if we continue reading, we find He came to the earth, right? It says in verse 4, In Him was life, referencing a, a person. So it moves from, just him, not from, moves from beyond Him being just the Word, and the Word being with God, and the Word was God. And him being eternal, he was in the beginning with God. And we're not talking about God per se. We're talking about, we know we have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. So who's he talking about? Well, it can't be God the Father, so as we continue reading, we're going to find it's God the Son, Christ. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, we continue reading here, we find John talking more about him, but we drop down to verse uh, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is that referencing? What is that talking about? If the Word is Christ, then in verse 14, what is he talking about? The Word became flesh. Is he talking about the birth of Christ? Yeah. The Word became flesh. Christ came into the earth and dwelt among us. That is, on the earth. 
and we beheld his glory. That is, they saw him. Some, no doubt, even touched him, and no doubt they heard him, and all those types of things. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, keeping that in your mind, we go back or forward, rather, to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. Notice the similarities. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. Is he still talking about Christ in 1 John? Yeah. And so we find those similarities. This is one of the reasons why we know that John and 1 John and also 1 and 3 John were written by John because of the way he writes. The things he talks about, the way he describes things, his wording is <clears throat> the same in many places where it's not the same, it's extremely similar. We find here though, that which was from the beginning, eternal, which we have heard, so now he moves from the eternal then in the very next phrase, says, which we have heard, which we have seen. So now he's talking about someone who, is, who they have heard, who they have seen, they heard him with their ears, they have seen him with their eyes. He says, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Do you remember he wouldn't be convinced that Christ rose from the grave unless he touched him? Thomas, right? Thomas the Dowder, right? It's a shame he had that nickname, that's what he's known for. Unless I put my hand in his side and touch, you know, touch those things, I would not believe. And then, of course, he did that, and he realized uh, the Lord, no doubt, was sitting there in front of him, very much alive. Uh, which we have handled concerning the word of life. The word of life, of course, is a reference to eternal life, a reference to the gospel. What Christ taught when obeyed would lead men to eternal uh, salvation. And so it's interesting how John talks about these things here as having seen and heard. If you have heard something, if you have seen it, if you have looked upon it with your own eyes, as it says here, if you have touched it with your hands, would you believe it was real? Yeah, right? And so that's what he's talking about here. He's giving us reasons really to believe. And we find that phrase and the idea many times throughout this book that, that we may know, that we may believe. And so we find that same idea here in 1 John 1 and verse 1. He says next, The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You notice he talks about yet again in verse 2, the idea of seen and heard. And so what John is putting to rest, really, is the idea that this is not something that was just passed down that John had heard someone talking about or heard someone talking about someone, but he had seen him. He had heard him. He had looked upon him. He had touched him. John himself was one, as we mentioned before, is recognized as the one whom Christ loved, whom Christ loved. Uh, we find in verse 2 here that same idea. The life was manifested and we have seen. We, he said that in verse 1 as well. And bear witness, which means we can tell you that what, what has happened because we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him. He is real. And declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. Manifested to them how? Was Christ prophesied to come? Yeah. 
in the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, if you want to boil it down to a very, very, very simple fact, and that is Christ is coming, New Testament, Christ is here, and then Christ is coming back, right? After Acts, or after the uh, Gospels. Christ is coming back. And we find here in verse 2, they have seen him, they have bore witness, they now bearing witness of him, which means they're telling people about it. He says, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. Verse 3, what does he say? That which we have seen and heard, and declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things are right to you that your joy may be full. He's wanting them to be at peace, isn't he? He's talking to Christians. He's saying you can rest assured, don't be shaken, as we're going to find later, by what others are saying. You remember at the end of, for example, in the book of Matthew, chapter 27 there, uh, and beginning in chapter 28, we find the Roman guards were set by the tomb of Christ for what purpose? To seal the tomb, right? And to make sure no one came in and stole the body. Remember what happened at the beginning of chapter 28? The Bible says the angel descended from heaven, right? Ravens chapter 27. Angel descended from heaven, rolled back the stone, and sat on top of the stone, which I think is kind of humorous. He sat on top of the stone that sealed the tomb, meaning it wasn't of any effort for him to do that. And the Bible also says that there in Matthew's account that the, that the Roman soldiers stood there trembling with fear. They stood like dead men, which means they didn't move. But remember also when they left and they went and reported what had happened, they were bribed and told that we will pay you to say that you fell asleep and while you were asleep, the disciples came and stole his body away. What would happen if a Roman soldier actually fell asleep on duty? Dead, Right? Much, I mean, much like today, I mean, in, in, in the military today, for what it is, if someone fell asleep on a dude, they wouldn't kill him, but they would be severely punished. But they were told to say, you fell asleep, and they came and stole the body away. If it comes to governor's ears, which means if it, if it gets back to him, who would probably put you to death, we'll secure you, right? And we find here in 1 John, he is really putting to rest those types of hearsay stories. Right? Because look at verse look at verse three and four. That which we have seen, you notice there he says we. If you back up in verse two he says we. In verse one he says we, which means what? It wasn't just him, right? It wasn't just him who saw Christ, it wasn't just him who heard Christ, it wasn't just him who uh, actually was able to touch him, to hold him. We know that during the uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper, one leaned upon Christ. You think there are times they touched one another? You think they ever hugged? I'm sure there's a lot of hugging going on because when you're scared, you need to comfort one another, right? There's a lot of scary things that happened during the life of Christ, even when his apostles were near. You think they didn't hug his neck? Think about how many times, for instance, when he calmed the sea and he got in the boat with him. You think, remember the Bible says they worshiped him, you think they didn't hug him at some point? They didn't embrace him and show gratefulness. And so no doubt there's numerous times in which they could have literally held him and touched him in some way. And all that is brought out here to show that he was and is real. Again, the we in verses 1, 2, and 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, now here's the purpose, that you also may have fellowship with us. 
If they have fellowship with them, believers in the Son of God, would they find comfort in that? Well, yeah, they're going to find comfort in fellowship, comfort knowing that these men and women also believe in Christ. They also were there, that we are not alone. And one of the great things about doing mission work and travel around and go to other places in the world is you find other Christians who have the same beliefs as you, and they should, that's why they're Christians, right? But they also have some of the same struggles. And we find here in verse 3, they're showing when they believe in Christ and accept Him as the Son of God, and no doubt we understand obeying His Word, right? They're able to have this fellowship with Him, and here this, this, this is just a reassurance of it. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, who they've been talking about the whole entire time, right? And these things we write to you, and here's the purpose again, that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Is there joy and comfort in knowing and accepting Christ and God and the Godhead? As we say, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is there joy in that? Well, yeah. Is there comfort in that? Yeah. And that's what we find here. These, these individuals are being reassured, they're being comforted, and they're being told that they have fellowship with them just as they have fellowship with God and the Father and with Jesus, His Son, and that their joy may be full. And we continue on here. I try to ignore some of these headings on some of the issues. Sometimes I don't always agree with them. But we continue on here in verse 5. Notice what he says next. This is a message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Okay, question. What is darkness a reference to? In a general sense. What's ignorance. ignorance or or sin, right? We have darkness and light a lot of times compared to the Bible. Light being righteousness, darkness being wickedness, or ignorance, no doubt, as well. But we find here in verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from Him, and declare to you the message that they heard from him who they have seen and heard and held and all those things, right? And declare to you that God is light, that would be righteousness, right? And in him is no darkness or sin or wickedness or ignorance at all. At all means what? Not even the tiniest bit, right? If you go and you, <laughs> let's say you go to a restaurant, we probably at some point experienced something like this. And every bit of that chicken you ordered is well cooked until the last little bite that looks really pink and not so warm on the inside, right? Was that done completely? No. Is God light completely? Yes. There's no darkness in Him. There's no sin in Him. There's, no, there's nothing that would, we would attribute to wickedness that can be applied to God. He says, in Him is no darkness at all. Now, I've been reading a lot. Someone want to read the very next verse, verse 6 of 1 John 1. <coughs> Someone want to read verse 6? We have fellowship with him and walk in darkness or lie and do not the truth. So, so we, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, so he. He qualifies, or he puts conditions in each of these situations, right? If we say, or we might say, we could also look at it as if we act or live, 
that we act like we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness. What do we say darkness is? Ignorance or sin, right? Wickedness. He says, we lie and do not practice the truth. And here's an easy question for you. Is that offensive today? To tell someone that you're really not in close with God because you're doing things that are sinful? That's offensive, isn't it? But if you look at the text, keep in mind, this is John speaking, an inspired man of God speaking. And he says, if we say, that's the condition, right? It means if, if, if you're in this condition, this is, what, this is the result. If we're not in this condition, we're going to see, let's talk about verse 7. He says, if we say we have fellowship with Him, we act like we have fellowship with God, and we walk in sin, we live in sin, we lie, and do not practice the truth. What does he mean by that phrase, do not practice the truth? That word practice is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you hear people say, well, they're practicing, I hear the phrase Catholic along with that lot of They're practicing Catholic, practicing Methodist. In reality, we are practicers of truth according to verse 6, right? Which means we are a practicing follower of Christ. Which means we are following His Word, and we make mistakes, we clear it up. That's what practice is for, for any team, right? So you can learn from your mistakes and don't do that again, right? Learn how to improve. And we find here in verse 6, it says, We lie and do not practice the truth, singular. So if we walk in darkness and act like we have fellowship with God, he says we're, we're, we lie. Could we lie to, in verse 6, to ourselves? Could we lie to God? He already knows that we're, if we're not living right, that we're being dishonest. But yes, we lie to God. But don't, don't we also lie to others? You know, sometimes you hear people say, use a phrase, well, you know, we kind of live a double life. And that's a scary thing to think about. What they mean by that is they act a certain way at a certain time around certain people, and they act another way around other people. Sometimes you hear people's stories, things on Dateline, people having other families no one else even knew about. You can get pretty extreme with that. But a double life is the idea that you're not who you say you are, right? And that's what verse 6 is saying. If you say you have to with Christ or with Him and walk in darkness, you're not who you say you are, you're lying, and you do not practice the truth. So how do we avoid that? Well, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. What is the key phrase in verse 7 that makes the latter part true? If we, what? Walk in the light. That's the difference between verse 6 and 7, right? That's the difference between the liar and the one who is practicing the truth. That's the difference between the one who is living a double life and the one who is only trying to live one right before God. So if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we've seen Christ being truth, we walk with Him, that there being, we literally walk in step with Christ. You're probably at some point little kids that try to walk in the footsteps of their parents, literally, maybe on the beach somewhere, they walk in front of them, they see their footprints, they look giant to them, they try to step inside them, or they walk beside them and compare their footsteps to their parents. With God and with Christ here, we walk in step with Him, which means we are following His lead, right? We're following His pattern, His uh, commands. 
We have fellowship, he says here, with one another. That's the first, right? With one another, that is with fellow Christians. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now you notice, this last phrase is not even mentioned in verse 6. Why is that? Because when you're walking in darkness, do you have access to sin? Not until repentance, right? Do you have, do you have access to, to forgiveness, rather? In verse 6, if, if you're walking in sin, do you have access to forgiveness? Not until repentance. We find in verse 7, those who are walking in light, those who have repented, those who obey the gospel, those who are not uh, lying to themselves or to others, he says, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we know we are forgiven of sin at baptism, but isn't it also true, as we'll see here in a moment, as we see in verse 9, that if we confess our sins to God, even after we are a Christian, that God will forgive us of those things? The text literally says, yes. Okay, let's read, I'm going to read verse 8 of 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, does the Bible tell us that all have sinned upon the shore of the glory of God? Yes, literally it says that word for word, right? And so we all have sinned our lives to take care of, so we don't want to be guilty of being the ones in verse 6 that have no, that have no uh, fellowship with Christ, who are walking in darkness and don't practice the truth. He says that we have, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. It means we're lying to ourselves, right? Sometimes in life, if we're not careful, we can get to the point where we're doing certain things. We think, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see the Bible condemning that. Or, well, it's really so I don't hurt this person's feelings or I don't cause this rift or whatever over here. But look at verse 8. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we have sinned in our lives, verse 9 as we will know, tells us how to correct it, right? If we deceive ourselves, and the, the truth is not in us. If we, say, if we say we have no sin. Verse 9, someone read verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, verse 8 and 9 put them together. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we're lying, and the truth is not in us. But in verse 9 it says the condition, if, if we confess our sins. Sins that are of a private nature, the Bible clearly shows by example numerous times, if our sins are private between us and God, maybe between us and our, our spouse or whatever, those things can be remedied between us and God or us and our spouse or whoever it may involve, right? If it's a private nature. Public nature means things that everybody knows about, making the church look bad requires a public repentance, right? David is an example of that with Bathsheba. Poor guy, that's one of the first thing he thinks about is Goliath or Bathsheba you think about David, right? But his sin was very public. God said he could give everybody a chance to blast him, so what happens? There's a severe penalty for that. Well, we confess our sins to Christ, to God, rather through Christ. Uh, he says here, if we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is the world as forgiving as God is? No. The world has a long, long 
memory, right? The world, maybe people who you've known for years, I'm just giving this as a possible example, may look at you and say, well, I remember you back in such and such time, and you always did these things, and I still see the same person. You know, that's their problem, isn't it? That's a lack of sight, really. Because when we look at people today, we, don't, we, we should try very best not to think about the things they've done in the past, especially if they've been repented of. We need to just leave it there, right? But sometimes we can call, allow ourselves to always allow that stigma to be applied to that person. David's a good example of that, isn't it? Because we think of David, we think of Bathsheba. Now that's recorded for us in a very public way so we can learn from it, but that's still one of the first things we think about. But we should not be like the world today who has that long, has that long memory, who maybe is unwilling to forgive. He says here in verse 9, He, being a reference to God, is faithful and just. That's the difference. He's faithful, which means he's always there. Not like people of the world today who are always there. And he is just, again, not like everybody else, uh, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which means any sin that we confess to God will be forgiven. That's what he's talking about. Now some people, we've talked about before the unpardonable sin. That's a whole different context. Because in context, all that's talking about, you deny God, Christ, Holy Spirit, that's your last hope. And what? You're on your own. Basically, if you deny God and I'm willing to accept Him and accept Christ and, and accept the Holy Spirit for who He is, then that's not, that's not a forgivable thing. You have to be able to believe in God and believe in Christ, all those types of things. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a Christian, in context, a Christian who is coming to confess their sins to God, which again can be done... Privately, it can be done coming forward into the service, whatever it may be. But we need to make sure we do that, right? If we confess our sins, God is what? How does God respond in verse 9 to us confessing our sins? The first thing it says is He is faithful, which means He's always there, right? So He's always willing to listen. Are people they always willing to listen? We want to make things right? No. We want them to be willing to listen, right? That's not always the case. <clears throat> Sometimes it is, but not always. But He is faithful, which means He's always there, and just to forgive us. Just means He is fair. He is balanced. He doesn't treat this person's actions any differently than He treats this person's actions. If, if one refused to repent, if either one refused to repent, they both go to the same place. Wouldn't they? Sins are treated the same. Forgiveness is given to all those who confess. The Christians we're talking about here in context. All those who confess their sin. Their sins are forgiven by God. So He is just, that is, He is balanced, He is fair. He says to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. You think about the idea of cleansing. If you, when you sin against God, or when you sin, and you confess those things to God, and you ask Him to forgive you your sins, that, you, know, you, you repent, you want to change, you want to get away from that action or those way of life, whatever it may be, you repent, you confess those things to God, and He forgives you. Does relief follow? Yes. Think back to when you were becoming a New Testament Christian. When you came out of the waters of baptism, how did you feel? Probably pretty relieved, right? I'm pretty excited. And we find here in verse 9 the same idea, right? He will cleanse us 
from all, he says, from all unrighteousness, which is every sin that we confess to God is forgiven. Those that are confessed will never be forgiven unless we confess those things to Him. And then again, someone read the last verse here in chapter 1, verse 10. So if we say that we have not sinned, again, this is dealing with denying sin in our lives. Now, it's probably one of the most difficult things in life is to admit that we have done something wrong, right? I don't care what it involves, who, you're, who it involves admitting you're wrong to. Is it ever easy to say, hey, that was, that was wrong? Even if it's, if, if it's not a person per se, if it was to God still, is it always easy to say, that was wrong. That was sin. Well, no, it's not easy because we can be very proud people. I mean, we all can at some point in our lives, right? Different times, depending on what we're talking about. So we find in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, if we refuse to, what? Verse 9, to confess, right? We make him a liar. And his word is not enough. That's a very powerful statement there in verse 10. We make him a liar. That is, we look at God's Word and God's Word, God's word tells us to live a certain way. We say, I'm not doing it. And I don't think it's sinful. We make him a liar. When we disagree with God's Word and we say that God's Word says this, like our people say before in another location, well, I believe you're making God a liar, right? Because you're saying God is nobody's talking about. I say it's okay. Verse 10 says, you make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Which means you're not a follower of God, you're not a follower of truth. You don't obey his word, and so what? His word is not in us. Now those ten verses, what is John trying to remind us? Can we bring our sins to God? Yes. Right? Can we rest assured when we confess our sins to God that those things will be forgiven and they will be completely cleansed of our sins? Yes. Can we believe those words of John? Can we believe his words based on what he said in the first few verses there? Because remember, the man who's saying this is the same man who said he, <clears throat> he saw, he heard, he touched him. Talking about Christ. And he says that multiple times in the first few verses and then he tells us if we have sin in our life, take it to God. I find it interesting that that's where he goes after that. He reminds them that God, he saw Christ, he reminds them of the, the fellowship they can have together when they have that same assurance together. And then he also goes to the very next step of, by the way, because we know Christ is real, because we know Him and we know the Father and we have fellowship together, we can bring our sins to Him, confess those things to Him, and we be cleansed from all of our sin and all our unrighteousness, and we will be at peace, right? That's a lot to say in 10 verses, but in a nutshell, that's what he's talking about. Are those words of comfort? They should be. Because if you think about the world around us today, which we'll talk about a little bit this evening, and who we go to and who we put our trust in or hope in, sometimes it doesn't work out very well. Whether you're talking about an individual or a business or an entity like the government in whatever form you're talking about. But God, as John is pointing out here in 1 John chapter 1, 
We know that He is the one true God. We know His Son came to the earth. We know that John, as he says, we, not just him, saw him, heard him, touched him, all those things. And based upon that, he says, we can bring our sins to God who is faithful, verse 9, just, in verse 9, and he will forgive us, verse 9. Yes. You alluded to the Romans 3, verse 23 earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't just that we can come to God for forgiveness in uh, 1 John chapter 1, but we need to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Romans 3, verse 23, uh, mm-hmm. all sin has fallen short of the glory of God. God is just. God is the one who has said these things are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, these things need forgiveness. And so, you know, he's a just God. But we, not, we just can't go to him, but we need to. Yeah, we need to. Yeah, definitely. And, and that comparison that's made between the person who confesses and the person who doesn't, the person who's in sin, and the person who says he's not in sin, is seen here as well, right? And, and John boils it down to, like Brother uh, Ron was talking about there, verse 10, by saying, you know, we see verse 9 the knee, and verse 10 he says, by the way, if we don't do this, we're basically calling God a liar, and his word is not in you, right? And so, there's a lot of people today, and there's a lot of examples you could use, of people saying, well, I don't see anything wrong with that, and so... We're just going to keep doing this. And, and what Paul wrote in, in Romans 3, verse 23, that's inspired by God. That's mm-hmm. God speaking you know, through, through his pen. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we, we make God a liar if we deny the sin of our life. Yeah, and if we make God a liar, we know what's going to be waiting for us. Okay, we, are, we have about just a few more minutes. We'll, we'll begin here chapter 2, just a few verses, uh, and then we'll, we'll end for today. But chapter 2... Uh, beginning in verse 1, says, My little children, the little children is a reference to Christians, right? And this is not a way to demean one, but he's looking upon them as family, basically. We find father, son, you ever think about that? My God is called the father, my Christ is called the son, when we are called children, when we call each other brothers and sisters, because the church is recognized as a family in the Bible. And we find the same idea here in verse 1, when he says, My little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so again, we know the headings and chapters and things like that are put in there by a man. But if we continue on in, verses, in verse 10, we, we see there where he says, you know, if you see me and not sin, we make him a liar, the word is not in us. Then in verse 1, my little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, so he says, if you sin, he says what? We have a way to take care of that, don't we? Because after our baptism, we're not going to be perfect human beings. We're going to make mistakes. I mean, we find examples of that in the Bible itself, right? Of men and women who were, who were Christians, and then they departed, or they made, they made mistakes. You say departed, they made mistakes, and repent of it. You know, remember Peter? And Paul had said to him, had to go and withstood him to his face because he was showing partiality and, and even with one group and one other group came to go and eat with them. He even called Barnabas to be carried, caught up in it. And the Bible says that Paul withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Uh, that shows us that even Paul or even Peter, an inspired man of God, he obviously was not a robot, even though he's inspired by God, could still make mistakes. And even Paul had to call him out on it. And so we today are, as we find here in chapter 2 and verse 1, have to remember that if we sin, that remember that we can go to God through Christ, 
Uh, we have an advocate with the Father. That is, we can go to the Father through someone. That is, he, he says here in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says in verse 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So we find in verse 2 a reminder that Christ paid the price for our sins. That's what that means there, for propitiation. He paid the price. He was the one who paid that ransom for us. And then He says, and not for ours only, not for our sins only, but also for, for the whole world. And as I pointed out before, not just the world during the time of Christ and the time of the apostles, but all the time, right? Past, present, and those who may come in the future as well. Uh, any comments before we close this morning? All right, then we're going to stop there. We'll pick up next week in John 